So as I said, we'll be in Luke chapter 15. If you're not already there, the Black Bible's in front of you, page 874 and 875. Before we start our service, there's normally some musicians getting things ready, and they're often tinkering and adjusting the soundboard in the back to make sure the levels are balanced. I don't know if you know anything about sound, um, but let's just imagine for a moment that the four speakers in front of us, now I'm not normally a prop guy, but they're here, so hey. Uh, Let's imagine these four speakers were supposed to be balanced because each of them were giving a different sound. So let's say we put on the tape player back there, or who uses tapes? What am I talking about? The MP3 player back there. Uh, a, a Beethoven's symphony or Bach. And, and this one is supposed to be playing more loudly the, the strings, the violins, the cellos. This one's supposed to be playing more of the percussion. This one's supposed to be playing the brass. And this one's supposed to be playing the winds, the clarinets, the oboes, etc. You get the idea? There's four different parts. And th- what they're supposed to do is all blend together as the sound is coming out to you But as we turn the MP3 song on, we find that one of the speakers is turned way too low and almost unheard at all. This one's turned up way too loud, that one is turned up too loud, and that one is turned off altogether. I think this image of these four speakers in front of you could be a helpful way to think about one of the most famous chapters and stories in all the Bible. When you think of Luke 15, almost everybody immediately thinks, oh yeah, that's the story of the prodigal son. But today, I think that in the same way that a wonderful, classical Beethoven song that's lasted through the ages should be beautifully balanced in all of what it's trying to say, that a lot of you in this room have some of the speakers, some parts of the verses are turned down or off altogether. Some of them are turned up too loud, and what you have is an unbalanced reading and understanding of the prodigal son story. In fact, what we're going to find throughout this sermon is that we probably should stop calling it the parable of the prodigal son. So if you have your Bibles open, what I want to do is just take the sections, and I want us to start with the first speaker. And what I'm going to propose today is that the first ten verses of chapter 15 are turned off too low. And that when you think about the whole chapter, most of you don't have this dialed up like it should be, and therefore the sound is not the way it should be sounding. So when we read verses 1 through 10, as Chad just did for us, some of the details that are lost are really, I think, most particularly turned down too low are verses 1 through 3. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. This context in the first two verses should set up and help us understand this is the reason why the next few verses follow. And look at verse 3. So, or in light of that context, Jesus tells them this parable. Is that plural or singular parables? 
this one parable Jesus told. Friends, these verses are turned off altogether. Most people are not observing that it's not three parables. You see, even in your Bibles, the editors of the English translation, look down at your Bibles. This is not the way Luke wrote it. There isn't paragraph breaks that say the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son. No, no, no. There's not three parables. The context is Jesus hears grumbling from tax collector, from Pharisees who see him eating with tax collectors and sinners. And so he tells them one parable with three parts. Now watch, if you follow the flow of the three parables, you'll notice there's something lost, and then when it's found, great rejoicing. Part two, something lost, when it's found, great rejoicing. Then, something's lost, and when it's found, somebody's not rejoicing. They all go together. Jesus is telling one parable to the men who are not rejoicing in the fact that Jesus is celebrating and eating with these tax collectors and sinners. Do you see how this speaker, this section of the story has been turned a little bit down, and we so miss what Jesus is doing here. So much so that I think we, we forget to realize that Jesus is speaking as the Messiah, the long-awaited prophet of Israel who would reign and rule and bring all of God's restoration and promises to fulfillment. Jesus is declaring all throughout his ministry that's who he is, and when he says things like this, one of the reasons why it's bad that this is turned down isn't just because you don't see how they're all connected. It's because I think a lot of us don't even realize that Jesus is telling Israelites a story about being lost, about the celebration of being found, and the full restoration from being out in a far country. For example, if you're an Israelite, does that sound familiar? Have you ever been out in a far country? Have you ever had a master who was a Gentile, not a Jew? Have you ever been enslaved to do awful work like working with pigs? Do you realize if you're a Jew that that would be like the most dehumanizing kind of work you could do? It sounds a lot like the Exodus story. They were out in Egypt, not home, brought back to their home through the great Exodus salvation. There's echoes of Exodus, but furthermore, there's definitely echoes of the Babylonian exile. Out in a far country, Babylonian king is ruling over you. You come back to your land, everybody's celebrating, but when you get back, you're still ruled by a Gentile ruler. So you got to understand that in Jesus' day, most of the people, like these Pharisees that are hearing this story, they still think that they're partially home and partially in exile. And what Jesus is doing by having meals with tax collectors and sinners is saying, the exile is all over. We're all home now. This is something that's been turned off altogether as we read the Gospels. My guess is that for a lot of you, you're not even thinking about these things and about the climactic purposes of God and the, the Israel story that Jesus is echoing in this parable. That's why we need to turn the volume a little bit up, and we need to realize that Jesus is critiquing the Israelites of his day and declaring by his meals with sinners and tax collectors, full restoration is here. Now, you and I, most of us in this room, we're not 
grumbling at Jesus, declaring that he's the Messiah. We're excited that he's the Messiah. The application for why we should turn this up, not only because it helps us understand the whole passage, but because it helps encourage you that God is always at work even when you least expect it. God is working at times when you don't think he is working, including these Pharisees who don't see the celebration of the Messiah right in front of their noses. Friends, I found great encouragement in thinking and reflecting on the great story of Scripture, finding its climax in Jesus. You have a God who makes promises, and he keeps all of them in Jesus. All of them. Turn the volume up on speaker number one. Realize that God is coming in the person of Jesus and telling that the climax of the Israel story has come. I have kept my promises, and there is great celebration to be had. And we should be encouraged by that. So let's now move on to speaker number two. One of the things we'll realize is that when we start turning up speaker number one and realize that there is a context for these stories, when we get to the next section of Scripture, verses 12 through 16, we realize that we've had this speaker up way too loud. These verses in the story are the ones that most of us think about when we think of Luke 15. They're up way too loud. Watch. In verse 11, it says, And he said there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided this property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. You see, when we read these verses in verses 12 through 16, we sometimes forget that it starts with verse 11. It's not the story of the prodigal son. And there was a man who had two sons. This is the story of prodigal son. You see how this speaker's turned up too loud? Most of us aren't thinking that this is a story about two sons who are lost and that there's one way to come home. We think that the older brother just needs a little attitude adjustment. No, no, he is lost. He is just as lost as this younger son who has squandered his living. One sheep, one coin, two lost sons. When that speaker starts to come up, you start to notice the importance of verse 11. And verses 12 through 16 start to balance themselves out. The most amazing thing about this reality is the fact that Jesus in this parable is telling us that some of you in this room your tendency is to be a younger brother. You're irreligious. You're immoral. You have tendencies to eat, drink, and party, and live it up, and live what most of us would people a bad life. And generally speaking, most people agree, yeah, that's bad. Re realize in verse 12, when he says, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming, that's telling, hey, Dad, I don't really love you anymore. I wish that you were dead and I could have your inheritance now. 
Like, that's a bad dude. And we all recognize that. We're all in agreement. Even Christians, non-Christians, humanity agrees these kind of people are bad. The problem is that Christianity says, but there's another kind of badness. There's elder brother, older brother badness. There's religious people who are still not loving the Father and just want his stuff. Look down at the end of these verses and notice the brother, older brother. Notice that in verse 28, he was angry and refused to go in when he heard about the party. The father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Ah, never disobeyed? He thinks that he's good. Yet you never gave me. What was his obedience trying to earn? You see how there's two ways to get lost? You can get lost by your badness and you can get lost by your goodness. Think about that for a little bit today. Which are you more prone to do? Self-righteous Pharisee types who he's obviously talking about in the context. So remember, if you turn up this speaker and you realize the context of this story is that there's two groups of people. There's sinners and tax collectors, the bad people. And then there's grumbling Pharisees who don't think they've done anything wrong. But both of them are not loving the Father. Then you start to hear this story about the Son in its proper context. You turn the volume down a little bit on all the bad people and realize we're all lost. We're all dead. And we're all trying to use either our badness or our goodness to run from God. Some people are using their goodness to run from God because what they're doing is trying to use their good deeds to manipulate God. And they're judgmental, they're self-righteous, and these are the people that don't get railed on by all the religious types. The bad people get railed on for being so bad. There's two ways to get lost. There's one way home through the Father. Both sons do not love the Father the way they should. So, application for us should be clear. If you're the younger brother type in the room, we need to repent of our badness and realize that all of our pursuits of trying to live it up in this world are going to come crashing down. We're going to hit rock bottom and we need to come to our senses. But there's a lot of probably older brother types because we're in a church. You know, the younger brother types, they're the ones that skip church. You guys are here. So if there's any older brother types, it's probably us. It's probably me. I'm the pastor. I'm never supposed to do anything bad. Do all of us see that we're lost and we need a Savior? Do all of us see that we can manipulate God or try to with our good deeds and be just far gone? as the younger brother. Once the first speaker's turned up, this speaker realizes it's a little too loud, and once that gets balanced out, we turn to a third speaker. Let's turn to the next passage, verses 17 through 24. This speaker similarly is turned up too loud. The part that's turned up too loud is, I believe, the first three verses, 17, 18, and 19. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as your hired servants. 
these verses are turned up way too loud because most of us think this is the model of repentance and it's possible that this is not even true repentance. Most of us are reading this and we're translating this verse, he came to his senses as if like he's convicted of his sin because look at the way he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. But this is either a David-like confession, oh, against you and you only have I sinned, Father. That's one possibility through the Old Testament of somebody repenting of their sin and saying, God, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against Bathsheba like David does in Psalm 51. But do you know who else repents like this? And if you're a Pharisee and you're a scribe and you know the Bible frontwards and backwards just like that, you'd immediately go Exodus chapter 16. Pharaoh, as he's talking to Moses, repents with these same exact words. I've sinned against heaven and against you. Could it be that he's quoting that phrase to refer to Pharaoh's unrepentant repentance? Could it be that his plan is, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to try and pay back my father. I'm going to work for him. Could it be that he is so low that he's not thinking, well, I just so badly want to get the father back. He's just, I've got no other option. And so I'm going to try and work for him. Even if this is repentance, and I'm just giving you the options, I think it's very possible that this is not true repentance. The point I'm trying to make is that this speaker, these first few verses are turned up way too loud. The first story is about a lost sheep and who goes after the sheep. The sheep finds himself and comes back to the shepherd. The coin somehow becomes a person and says, look at me. That's not how the story goes. Both stories talk about a lost object and somebody is searching for it. Somebody is saving it. If we turn that down a little bit, we start to realize the turning point in the story is not when he comes to his senses. The turning point in the story is verse 20. He arose. He came to his father. But while he was still a long way off. All right, let's just stop and take these one at a time. This is the turning point. So he arose and he came to his father. While he was still a long way off. Why is that detail in the story? If any son in a smaller village would have done something like this son, the whole village would have known and turned against him. And there's actually written down, documented ceremonies for how we are done with you and you are cut off. If this son comes back to the village, he will be kicked out from all the other villagers. So while he's still a long way off, he's not back to the village yet. The father sees him and he has to go out to the son before he can come back home. Do you see the importance of this point? When that speaker's turned up too loud about the action of the son, you miss the importance of the actions of the father. The point, the turning point, is the action of the father. Look at the next line. And when the father saw him, this is, this is the line, he felt compassion. This is the word that his, his internal organs are ripping inside. He, he longs for them. He, he loves him in this moment. And what does he do? The unthinkable, he runs. He runs. Children run. Women in this first century culture run. Dignified, wealthy, 
patriarchal fathers never run. Contextualize this for a second. Imagine when I lived in Washington, D.C., President Obama's got to get from the White House to the Capitol building. You know when that happens? D.C. gets shut down. It's not fun to be a D.C. commuter and have President Obama traveling anywhere because roads get blocked, long SUVs and big black cars start streaming through, Secret Service is running through, and you've got to wait until this gets through. That's what dignified people travel like. We never, ever see President Obama running from the White House because he's late for a meeting at the Capitol building. Do you see what I'm trying to say here? Picture something ridiculous like that. That's what Jesus is inserting this point in the story for you to think that is ridiculous. That he would run out to the sun. Fathers don't run. And he ran. And this is the part that gets me. Everyone thinks the turning point is when he comes to his senses. No, he doesn't even get a chance to talk to the father. The father runs to him and embraces him and kisses him before he says a single word. Do you get what I'm saying here? This is not about the repentance of the son. It is about the love of the father that initiates and goes out after the son, just like the shepherd goes after the sheep and after the woman looks for the coin. It's too loud. We can learn things about his turning back to the father, but if we think that's the turning point of the father, that speaker, I believe, is turned up too loud. He hugged him. He kissed him. And then notice, remember his plan. His plan was to say these words. And then he was going to say, let me, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as your servant. But watch, verse 22, but the father cuts him off. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But, see the way Jesus tells the story? He can't even say everything he was trying to say. The father cuts him off and tells him, but I want you to have the best robe I want you to have a ring on your finger. I want to have shoes on your feet. I want to kill the fattened calf. Let's eat and celebrate. This is the important turning point. And so often, I believe, as I've heard the story told throughout my years of growing up in church, this speaker's too loud. We should be melted, even right now, as we consider the love of the Father. The initiating, the sacrificial, about the, the patience of waiting and waiting, seeing the sun a long way off. The Father first loved you. That's the reason you're here today if you're a Christian. Not because you first loved him. The initiating love of the Father is taught all through Scripture. It's taught all through chapter 15. It is definitely taught in this last story. So, Speaker number one, two, and three are starting to get balanced a little better, hopefully. That leaves us one more speaker, one last section. Look at verses 25 through 32. I think this speaker has parts of it that are turned completely off. Similar to speaker one, we need to turn the volume up and understand this is the dagger in the hearts of the audience. Let's read them together. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. I love that Jesus says that there's music and dancing. This is, this is a party, guys. He called one of the servants. This, this could be a young boy and not necessarily a servant. Depends on how we translate it. But either way, I don't think that detail's 
too important. He called someone who knows what's going on, whether it be a young boy or servant, and this is what they told the older brother. Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf. And then notice this. Because he has received. Where did you see received? Oh, that speaker's been turned off because you don't even remember that that's important. Verse 1 and 2. Jesus is receiving sinners. Same word. Same idea. The Father is receiving the sinner bad people types. And this is exactly the way the story has the punchline for you to come staggered to the end of the story. He has received him back safe and sound, but this older brother is angry, refused to go in, and so the initiating love of the father happens again. This is turned off. This speaker is almost completely neglected when we tell this story. The father initiates with the first lost son, and he initiates with the last son. He goes out and realizes the son's not there. The party is for him too. He entreats him, the text says. He begs him, come, son. This party's for you too. I want to make sure we hear this point because so often when we see Jesus saying these words to the Pharisees and the the scribes and the Jewish leaders of the day, we think that Jesus is just anti those guys and doesn't love them. I think this is a clear example that in the Meals with Jesus series, throughout the whole summer, you've noticed Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners, and he eats with self-righteous Pharisees and scribes. He's not just after one or the other. He's after both. The problem is that they are too angry and upset with the realities of what Jesus' kingdom is like that they don't want to come in. It's not because the love of the Father is only for certain types. He entreats them both. Look, these many years I have served you, the Son says. I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me even a young goat that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this Son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, now we don't know if he did that, Reckless living could just be expensive living, and he just squandered all of his living, but we know that the, the perspective of the son, of the older brother, is that guy. Prostitutes. He assumes the worst. It could have been exactly prostitutes, but he doesn't know. He's been off in the field. He doesn't even know that the son is back yet. And you killed the fattened calf for him? Verse 31. He said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your father was dead. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. These last two sentences need to be turned up. Did you know that for much of Christian history, Muslims have used this story of the prodigal son to say that Jesus is teaching good Muslim theology. The father welcomes the son, who's a sinner, back into the home, and there's no atonement, there's no cross, there's no blood. He just forgives him. That's Muslim Theology 101. Jesus is a good Muslim. 
Jesus is not a good Muslim. He loves Muslims. He wants them to come home too, just like all of us. But when we turn the fourth speaker up, the way it should be dialed up, we'll realize these last few words are the key to understanding the whole story. First, we need to understand Jesus leaves the story with a cliffhanger. He just stops. Notice there's no repentance, there's no turning. We don't know. It's like he's telling the story and he's telling these tax collectors, these uh, Pharisees and these scribes, so what's it going to be? It's always been yours to begin with. God has chosen you Jewish Israelites. This is yours. It's always been yours. God loved you. The Father has loved you. Secondly, the words, all that is mine is yours, I believe is literally true. Because when the father divided his inheritance, he gave one-third to the rebellious younger brother and two-thirds to the older brother. So literally, all that the father has is the elder brothers. Which means, part of why he might be angry is the fact that the father is using what was rightfully and legally his to celebrate and kill the fattened calf. See, what, one of the things I don't think we realize, because this speaker's turned off altogether, is that all three stories are trying to tell you that the father goes great lengths with great cost. And one of the details of the story that we don't even realize is that the this story, so, so imagine all of us, let's, let's go back in time, let's imagine that we're in the first century, we're hearing this when Jesus first spoke it, and all of us in this room understand first century culture. Boom, just like that. You would have heard the end of this story, and you would have thought, what is wrong with that older brother? And you would have known that it would have been the older brother's obligation to go after the younger brother, and did he ever do that once in Jesus' story? He's angry that the Father has spent what is his to receive and welcome back sinners. How do you not see the gospel? How do you not see that Jesus is telling us through this story, not only am I like the Father, not only am I like the woman searching for the coin, not only am I like the good shepherd, but I am the true and faithful older brother who will give anything at any cost to celebrate and welcome sinners in. I am the true older brother that is supposed to reconcile lost sons with the heavenly father. And that is, in fact, what he came to do when he died on a cross. Is the cross explicitly mentioned? But if you understand all that Jesus is doing and the climax of Luke's gospel is having him die on a cross, you understand the Christian theology, you realize the cross is all over this last speaker. And if we had them all, I think, balanced the way we should, there would be no Muslim saying, oh, Jesus is just telling another good story about Muslim theology. It costs something to forgive. And Jesus is the true older brother that is willing to give more than just a fattened calf. He's willing to give his life. This is the good news that we have here at Embassy to proclaim week after week. There's two ways to get lost. There's one way home. It's through the bloody cross of Jesus who sacrificed it all and was happy 
for the joy set before him. He was happy to give of himself all that he has for you. So, Embassy Church, who are you struggling to be more like? Are you a lot like the younger brother? In unrepentant sin? Squandering? Living your life thinking, this is the only life I got, let's just live it up. Or are you a lot like the older brother? Either way, the call this morning is for you to see once all speakers are rightly tuned, it should be that beautiful music that sends chills down our back, that sends tears down our face and say, this is gorgeous. This is breathtaking. This is stunning. Has that happened to you at all today? It's one of the most encouraging, exciting, amazing stories I think Jesus tells. There's a reason why it's famous. It's just too sad that it's been unbalanced for all these years, at least in my understanding. I hope you hear the music of Luke chapter 15 afresh today, and I hope it leads you to glory in the Father who sent the Son, who gave his life for you. Let's pray.